How's everyone going? How's everyone doing? I mean, uh, hope your weekend is going well. Thanks for joining me. All right. I want to talk about these uh, Ukraine war leaks, these uh, series of documents that have appeared online that appear to come from the Pentagon. And after reading through them, or at least reading through the accounts in U.S. media, I actually have not examined the documents themselves. I've only read the accounts in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and New York Times. The first thing I notice is that the reporters at the Times and the Post who are being reporting on these leaks are the same people who've pushed all sorts of national security state deceptions for a long time. So, for example, the lead reporter on the story at the Washington Post is Ellen Nakashima. She was the reporter who was given the uh, CrowdStrike claim that Russia hacked the DNC. So basically, she was used to kick off Russiagate uh, by crowds by the Clinton campaign via its contractor CrowdStrike, and uh, and has you know taken part in a, in a series of other just basically uh, laundering operations for the national security state, acting as a stenographer. And then in the Times, same thing. I see names like Julian Barnes, and Julian Barnes is the reporter who was uh, involved in the New York Times um, story recently about Nord Stream where some intelligence officials planted a claim that the culprit was likely an unspecified pro-Ukrainian group and definitely not the U.S. with no evidence whatsoever. And Julian Barnes is, is the same reporter who then went on the Times podcast, The Daily, and basically said that... Um, the, the reason the Times was able to discover this is because they started asking the right questions of their U.S. sources who then, who then told them the right answer. Basically, he was trying to somehow whitewash being used to launder a fake claim. And just to underscore that, this week the New York Times came out with an article about Nord Stream that was so funny. So basically after they get used to, um, to launder the cover story for the CIA that somehow the U.S. wasn't responsible for Nord Stream – um, this week, the Times came out with a story basically saying that, you know what, we might never know what really happened like with the Nord Stream, and it's actually better that we might not know. Uh, let me actually read that quote to you. Um, it is very, very, very funny. But basically, it's like, so after being used to launder a cover story, the Times came out and basically said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't actually be asking these questions. This is the Times. Uh, this is from this week. Intelligence leaks surrounding the sabotage of the pipelines have provided more questions than answers. It may be in no one's interest to reveal more. How is it possibly in no one's interest to reveal more about this major act of industrial sabotage? Uh, it's only not in the interest of the people who perpetrated the act, and that's what the Times is covering up for. So my point is, is that given how compromised the Times is uh, and the Washington Post when it comes to these vital stories involving the national security state, these Pentagon leaks to me, they just seem suspicious. And the theme that runs through them to me is that when I read about them is that they don't really make the U.S. look bad. They claim that the U.S. has penetrated Russia's uh, military and intelligence and has all these insights into what Russia is doing. And, okay, maybe that's true. But um, what they're revealing here, to me, doesn't seem to prove that. Uh, we learned that the U.S. knew about one Russian strike ahead of it happening. Okay, maybe that's true. Um, but we don't learn anything that really embarrasses the U.S. And every time you have leaks that don't embarrass at all the country that the leaks come from, and then you see all these credulous reporters being used to push the story, I don't know. It just raises suspicions for me. And then what do we learn? What do we learn that's like damning of the U.S.? Well, like we learn that they're spying on their allies. They're spying on Ukraine and they're spying on South Korea. That's, that's one thing that's come out of these stories. But you know what? That's not exactly news. And uh, like we know the U.S. spies on its allies. I mean, that's been known for a very long time. I mean, go back to the NSA leaks from Edward Snowden. We found out that the U.S. was tapping the phone of Angela, Angela Merkel, which was the chancellor of Germany. So, it just doesn't strike me as the fact that nothing here is really damning to the U.S. I don't know. It raises the question for me is like, is there maybe an, an agenda behind these leaks? Um, 
are they not just simply, you know, uh, straight up leaks from someone who wasn't authorized to do this? Uh, and as to what could possibly motivate these leaks, well, if leaks come out saying that the U.S. has this penetrated window, has penetrated Russia's national security state, I mean, that could be basically like a, a psyop or a propaganda operation to basically try to uh, make Russia worried that it's compromised and, uh, you know, sell the public on the U.S. capabilities. Um, or maybe there's some interest here. I mean, like we know there is a split inside the Pentagon. There are people like Mark Milley who have advocated negotiations and said that Ukraine's battlefield prospects are not very strong, although Milley has since backed down on that. But he's, you know, he is reflecting a point of view inside the Pentagon. So maybe there is some sort of, maybe these leaks derive from that, like someone is trying to perhaps weaken public support for a Ukrainian counteroffensive. I don't know. But it's just the whole thing to me, it raises questions. And I just don't take these leaks at face value. I just wonder, I have to wonder what the agenda is behind them. Okay, well, that's my rant. We can talk about other things uh, if you guys want to. Uh, this week there was that um, that report in the Wall Street Journal that William Burns is very, very upset with uh, Saudi Arabia uh, because it's been negotiating with Iran and also with Syria. And Burns apparently flew over. Um, you know, he's a director of the CIA. He flew over to Riyadh and expressed frustration with Saudi Arabia that it basically peace is breaking out in the Middle East and the U.S. is not controlling. I thought that was very revealing. And just to make sure that the U.S. knows who's boss, it's been it's just sent a new submarine uh, deployment into the Middle East. I think just to remind people that uh, you know it's still trying to run the show, but. I thought it was hilarious to see the director of the CIA melting down over Saudi Arabia negotiating with people. <laughs> and, uh, and, and by the way, it, there, one tangible development to come out of this is that it looks like the war in, in Yemen is really scaling down, if not coming to an end. Um, that looks like that, that's on the horizon. That's really exciting. And it looks like China is the one that pulled this off. So, that's a rare positive development in the world, and no wonder that the U.S. is upset by it. Okay, uh, let's take some calls. Uh, Scotty. Hey, happy Easter, uh, Aaron. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Happy Easter to you. Uh, yes. So, first off, um, I wanted to say uh, one uh I think you should do more of those uh, lyrics to go segments that you did with your brother. I think it was a year or two ago. Uh, you were like uh, analyzing uh, rap lyrics. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, yeah. My my brother Daniel is a um, uh, is a writer. Uh, he writes uh, musicals and uh, and he studied that in school. He he also uh, helped my dad write his his latest book, uh, The Myth of Normal, and he he did he has a podcast where he talks about lyrics, and so I I went on with him. What's the podcast called? Is it called Lyrics to Go? It's called, well he he has a new one now. I think they changed the name. Um, he had he does it now with a co-host, and they also it's not it's no longer called Lyrics to Go. Here I'll find it. Um, I. Uh, yeah, I will find it. Uh, but yeah, he does. Um, he still does a podcast about lyrics. That's yes. Okay, so uh, uh, I want to uh, say a couple of things. One, um, I listened to, I actually bought, uh, paid for the uh, uh, the description for the David Sorota uh, Lever podcast, so I could listen to the ALC interview. Okay. So I can listen to the whole thing. And I'm listening throughout the entire interview. And there's no pushback throughout the entire. Like, you, you know how they were clowning Dave Rubin for just letting his guests talk without any, like, interjections or anything? Or, like, they asked her, the, he asked her about the, the uh, vote 
for on the um the railroad workers and about why okay like why did you um why did you vote to ban a strike and she just lets her talk without like any interjection otherwise and then like at one point she says well um there uh, like people really don't know like what it entails uh, for a general strike the second and third and she also at a couple of points throughout the interview she she doesn't say it but you could kind of tell that she really is not like she does not like getting criticized from the left and at some point she's saying uh bill you know these social media companies are owned by billionaires and they get incentivized for intra-left conflict and just be on the lookout for people whose uh whose careers depend on clicks and views and and it was just like really weird like it it, it just really thinks this was i was really thinking to myself like these people really see a lot of themselves in alc like they like you, you know they they spend so much time like in either in dc or like these yeah. elite uh, schools right. and that's part of me is really thinking to myself like like maybe that's why he got so pissed off with like he got sawed out with, like in the force of vote thing and i'm just like wow like no pushback throughout the no, of course. entire yeah, interview but the uh, the um the thing is i do think that that given that the squad is has sometimes been i think valuable on certain issues like I do think they deserve to have media like like just like everybody else in politics has some media that like are fully on their side like to me it's fine that the squad has some media that like it like that like does their bidding and doesn't question them and and they but what bothers me about them is they'll only on the left they'll only speak to them so it's like if you want to be a journalist who's like won't criticize the squad and, and like does their bidding because at least they represent your issues sometimes. Uh, that's fine. Like, that, that's your choice. I would never do that, but whatever. But what bothers me about them is they won't speak to anybody on the left who doesn't just want to do their bidding. And that's just unfortunate. So they can't, they'll never face a real, uh, you know, a real challenge from the left. Uh, and, and they'll never face critical questioning. And so, for example, on the proxy war, uh, and you, on, on them lining up with, you know, neocons to support the proxy war in Ukraine, I can't think of one time they've ever been asked a critical question unless it's been in public when protesters are confronting them because they just won't go on shows that will ask them critical questions. And I just think that's a shame. Yeah, they had to get questions. And and just to illustrate, this week, so I don't know if you guys saw this, but Matt Taibbi went on um, Mehdi Hassan's show. He's he's on Peacock, which is an MSNBC uh, network. And... uh, you know, did this interview and Mehdi was so typically melodramatic and hostile and like wouldn't let Matt speak and was trying to get him all these. He didn't. It was it was about the Twitter files. And instead of being genuinely curious about what the Twitter files contained, Mehdi was just trying really hard to discredit Matt. And he did so by focusing on these like minor errors that his Comcast funded team of producers found that are completely trivial. And in some cases actually weren't even errors. And uh, anyway, after um, after that happened, AOC tweets out like this thing, like, "Whoa, this is this like raises questions about, um, you know, like basically her point was that like that like this the, 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 that these minor errors um, basically kind of disqualify Matt's entire body of reporting on the Twitter files. He's done like all these installments of, like on the Twitter files, which show you know collusion between the national security state and all these uh, fake front." Intel, Intel groups trying to censor people on the internet, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere. And uh, she was basically suggesting that all of this discredits mass reporting because Medi found a couple of errors that in reality only amounted to one or two errors at the most. Um, and uh, that's her trying to show that she's firmly within the Democratic Party establishment because these Twitter file leaks, they embarrassed the Democratic Party because, you know, among the examples of censorship, of course, was the Hunter Biden laptop story where, 
you know, the story about a presidential candidate, Joe Biden and his son, was censored because some random intelligence officials said this might come from Russia, which was a complete lie. And rather than caring about that, you have people like AOC trying to discredit the reporting that's done about it. And that's that's where they're at. And uh, they can get away with it because nobody on the left questions them about it, everyone, and everyone accepts it. And as people like Mehdi Hassan illustrate, they're trying to actually uh, suck up to the narrative and cater to it rather than discuss the contents uh, of Matt's reporting. So that's where we're at. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, I don't know what else to say, but, like, you know, I I don't get invited to these spaces anymore either. There's no, I'd be happy to debate anyone about, you know, what the progressive stance should be on the Ukraine proxy war, uh, on censorship, on Russiagate. But again, even during Russiagate, it was like, you know, those of us who didn't accept that the president was compromised by Vladimir Putin and didn't think, didn't accept on faith all the claims about Russian meddling. I mean, we were all marginalized then too. So this, all, all this is just an outgrowth of that. Yeah. As far as the Matt Dive, you think, I kind of, I do agree with Dor that uh, I th- I find it I didn't it's not that it it doesn't uh, it's not lost on me that after six years of not being invited on MSNBC that they find like of all times to actually do it is when they find that you know that they have a prepared hit job that they're going to unleash on them. Like, that's crazy, and sorry, but Matt's too nice. He's too nice. Like, uh, I I wouldn't have had that m- amount of patience to deal with these people, knowing, like, especially, like, they're just trying to teach you I, a job. Or, I, you know. I, that is, Matt definitely was too nice to Matty. I think, I think Matt's problem here is Matt's an actual journalist, and when you're an actual journalist, you expect other people to operate in good faith and to be interested in, jur- in talking about journalism because, like, Otherwise, what's the point of being in this whole field if you're not interested in talking about like what we're doing, which is journalism? Instead, he he was met by someone who just who didn't care about journalism, doesn't care about having a good faith discussion, just wants to score points and try to like discredit Matt. And Matt, um, operating from a place of not being that kind of person, just wasn't prepared for that. And so, when you're talking to these people, you have to be vicious and you have to be willing to call them out and not tolerate their bolt, not tolerate them interrupting you constantly and call them out. And, and Matt did finally at the end, he said, you know, he said something about uh, how ridiculous it was to be scolded by Mehdi on MSNBC when MSNBC pushed six years of Russiagate lies. And, and what did Mehdi say in response? He said, oh, I wasn't there during, during that period. You know, that was his only response. Oh, I wasn't there, you know. Um, and um, that was a revealing moment. When, when that happened, among others. Uh, Scotty, thank you for the call. You too. Thank you. Okay. Uh... Happy, sun, uh, happy Passover, Easter. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Hey, uh, just on the back end of that, uh, the Matt Taibbi interview, uh, I, I did think it was funny that Mehdi ran away from the Russiagate-related reporting that MSNBC did. He made no attempt to defend it whatsoever. Like, of Matt brought not. that up two or three times, and he was like, oh, it wasn't me. wasn't me. Had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I did thought, I did think that was a, an amusingly craven moment where he was just like, no, I'm not going to defend the network on that one. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's, he's trying to get Matt to basically denounce Elon Musk, right, to, to say something bad about Elon Musk. And Matt's point was like, look, this guy uh, has facilitated the uh, exposure of some really important stuff in the public interest, you know. So Matt, while he's doing that reporting, What's he going to do? Is he going to trash the guy who's like been helping him get out all this important information to the public, like just to just to like uh, please Medi? And you yeah. saw, and, and Medi. So when Medi is gets challenged on something that he could trash from his own side, for example, six years of RussiaGate propaganda, he doesn't say, "Oh, you know what? Like you're right. See, I'm consistent." And the RussiaGate are what, what was a disgrace, and you know, uh, you know, I, I pledged to not do that. He says, "Oh, I wasn't there." So he wouldn't do it either. He's trying to get Matt to denounce Elon Musk when Medi can't even criticize the like six-year Russiagate propaganda campaign of the network that, that's paying his salary. So it showed him to be a coward and a complete hypocrite, 
which of course is what he is because he's just an opportunist. Um, yeah, the, the the Elon Musk criticism is is kind of curious because it's like nobody seems to be interested in the fact that previous ownership just sat there and took their beatings and took the pressure quietly and suffered in the dark. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Elon Musk decides to like just start running his mouth and blabbing about it, right? You know, through this reporting and through the exposure, and you know, embarrass and humiliate the security state for all of the the mechanisms, formal and informal, that they've been using over the years. I mean, I, I thought Matt wasn't ready for like the machine gun style debate style med, the, you know that Medi brought I mean he's not like as quick on his feet as some right he's you know a long form reporter he's a very thoughtful guy right yeah, sure. but I, I mean I thought he needed to kind of slow the interview down and just say look Medi the point here is there's a number of mechanisms by which there's a ton of pressure brought to bear on this company over several years well whenever, and there's... whenever he tried to say that Medi interrupted him he did oh I, mean, I know he's such, yeah. a, he's, such he's, he, he's so he's so bad faith I mean no one can watch that and say that this guy operates in good faith. He, he's, an, he's an opportunist and an operative who just has an agenda. He's not interested in, in a real discussion. And by the way, look, you know, all these people trying to paint Matt Taibbi as a tool of Elon Musk, just whatever, on Friday, Matt announced he's not going to use Twitter anymore because Elon Musk, for some stupid reason, started throttling. The Substack articles Substack, got blocked, right? Yeah, because he, I think, I, I, it seems to me Elon Musk has gotten it, he's, Come to start thinking that like Substack is threatening Twitter because they've launched some new thing called Notes, which is just ridiculous. Like, how could possibly Substack compete with Twitter? And regardless, how can the answer be to like block links to Substack? It just doesn't, or, or whatever it is, like to limit the spread of links to Substack. It doesn't make any sense. And so, Matt, well, and so well Matt, done by what, Elon Musk because now I know that exists, where as before I didn't. Exactly. Exactly. It was it, it was good promo for Substack. And so, what did Matt do? Matt announced, "I'm not going to use I'm not going to use Twitter anymore as long as this is happening." So, so it's like, almost like he's not Elon Musk's pet, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And people can't like process the fact that like um, Matt actually is not just a stooge of Elon Musk's because they're projecting onto Matt their own behavior. So, in the case of Medi, he's a tool of whoever is paying him. And he would never criticize them. That, that's why he can't bring himself to, you know, say that Russia Gate is a scam. Is because he's more Comcast's him. pet than uh, Taibbi is Elon uh, Musk's course, pet. You of know, course. of course, like <laughs> nobody has a bad word to say about Comcast on that network. Matt doesn't work for Elon Musk, and he never has, and he never oh, will. Of uh, he just happened, but it's like right now, Elon Musk happens to be facilitating the the disclosure of these really important um, uh, uh, of this really important story. And so Matt is not going to go out of his way to trash him for no reason. Like now Elon then did something that goes against, you know, the whole ethos of like free speech. And so then Matt did, did say something, um, which is directly re like related to him. But this game of trying to get you to like trash someone just for the sake of it, just to show that you're willing to, uh, you know, renounce someone is I think pretty silly. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, I wanted to back on the uh, the Ukraine war documents that were leaked. I wanted to get what your thoughts were around the casualty figures that have been going around. Right. Because a lot of this, you know, narrative war uh, relies on who's, you know, really suffered what losses. Right. Yeah. So a lot of U.S. sources are insisting Russia suffered 200,000 casualties or some astronomical number. I'm not sure I buy that, but like. I don't know how much they've suffered, and I don't know how much the Ukrainians have suffered either. There was that one BBC study that took a good hard look at uh, like funeral records and obituaries and that kind of thing that saw much lower Russian casualties. And I, I just feel like a lot of the uh, the narrative war over who's actually winning and who's not revolves around what those casualty figures really are. And I'm not sure... You know, there were a couple of le numbers that were thrown around in there. I'm not sure what you made out of that. But it yeah. did seem like Ukraine was admitting a lot more casualties than they had previously admitted. Right. You know, that's the problem. I have no idea. Like, to me, it, it makes sense that Ukraine would suffer more casualties given just that they, you know, I think Russia has more firepower. And uh, Yeah, you know, I've seen 10 to 1 artillery ratios being yeah, thrown exactly. around. So, so, yeah. so if you have that kind of ratio in firepower, it just would make sense to me that Ukraine would take more losses. But I don't know. Um, uh, the, I'll the, let you go. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's the thing. I just, you know, there's no, I have no window into casualties. And so I just don't go there. I, I have no, you know, in war, it's just hard to trust any side figures about that. Okay. Uh, Joe. Well, let's see. 
Hi there. Hey, so Joe, you're on. There was an update and I had to re-enable the microphone thing. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, uh, the first caller mentioned your brother's, um, uh, podcast doing like exploring rap, uh, lyrics and just stuff stuff like that. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It's cool. And it's actually, so it's called let's get lyrical. Uh, Okay. And and him and his co-host discuss lyrics from all different music genres. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm going to have to find that. The other thing tangent, like kind of related to that is that your brother might be interested in is check out professor sky on YouTube. He's a French literary professor who does go through hip hop, um, lyrics through that lens. And it's really interesting. And he's always, he always tries to be positive and all that. It's, it's great. Professor sky S K Y E. Um, and then beyond that, when it came to the like Matt Taibbi, Mehdi Hassan thing, man, I I really can't disagree with Jimmy Dore's assessment and to the extent where it's like Matt is kind of his own worst enemy where he does go into these situations where, you know, he knows the personality is probably like across the table from him or across the debate stage or whatever is just going to trample over him. And that's tough. It's tough to watch because a lot of us have read Matt's writings. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It's echoing. Okay. Uh, it's not echoing for me. I will try. Okay. Sorry. So, someone in, uh, yeah, but it's tough. Cause like a lot of us have read Matt's other writings. And one of the things that stuck out to me in, uh, the introduction of hate Inc is the fact that he is, he, you know, as of that writing, he kind of viewed the world through an absurdist philosophy lens. And I don't know, that's, that's something that I try to do as well. Cause it's again, all, and it's all really just unnecessarily navel gazing stuff for this call in. But, um, Albert Camus kind of pioneered that or what kind of like sharpened that, uh, philosophy of thought he's worth checking out um the pentagon stuff and the ukraine i guess i i've had my head down pretty much this whole week because i did actually pull papers to run for city council in worcester massachusetts so my life's going to get really really weird because i'm not doing it through either democratic or republican party so um that brings me to the axe that I've been grinding. Uh, metaphorical axe. I wonder if there's anything in those leaked papers about Jim McGovern. Because I, I haven't had a chance to go through him or anything like that. But knowing that, again, he was one of the first people on the ground in Ukraine showing solidarity and support. And that rhymes with 2008 when he was among the first on the ground showing solidarity and support for the rebels in Colombia that over, you know, and did all that bullshit. So I, I wonder if there's anything about him in there. I, I would love to start digging through because last time let's all remember that they found a rebel dead rebel with a hard drive implicating Jim McGovern directly. Like the guy was, apparently asking Jim for help and uh, lo and behold, a little bit later, him and Nancy Pelosi are down in um, Columbia. I didn't know that. It's that is news to me. Yeah. It's all in the Washington journal. Okay. It's all in the, yeah. You know, uh, wall or yeah, it's all there. I, I got a link to it, man. I can send it to the chat. Okay. Please do Joe. Thanks yeah. for the call. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Gator. Hey, can you hear me okay? Uh, yes, I can. Great stuff. Um, yeah, good, good choice of topics. I mean, I think you're right. I, I generally agree with everything you've said, so I won't waste time sort of repeating it. But I just wanted to run by you a sort of my version of a take on, on, the, on, the, on the way that the Ukraine 
Intel and the Nord Stream, the current version of Nord Stream sort of run possibly parallel. So I looked at the Ukraine um, images. Uh, there's, there's several. I mean, there's claims to be hundreds, but I've only found about maybe 10 mapping, you know, uh, unit size and that sort of thing. And in there, there's not actually a lot of detail. I mean, there can't be anything in there that Russia didn't already know from its own AWACS operations and contact, basically, and running running in a theatre. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't see it as a as a big intel compromise that Russia didn't, you know, is Russia's going to be rubbing its hands over. And so um, I was thinking, well, what does this enable, like you? And essentially what it enables is the US to spin a line that says, Ukraine is increasingly insecure, untrustworthy, and a compromised partner because this is yet another example of that. In addition to all of the bad press it's had over the since the start of the war, um, it, it, Ukraine is losing despite an extremely massive benevolent support from the West. That's not our fault, guys. That's uh, that's that's you know a function of Ukraine, and then it preconditions all of us to expect to further expect a loss or a cessation via other means, which is a way for you to actively drive down the narrative, um, which is actually already happening, which is Zelensky's desperation and, and China basically prepping a, a, a peace negotiation position. That's essentially America's way to, of saying, potentially, well, they will lose, they, they can't be trusted anyway. So we actually ran out of options. So we had to let them go and do that option because because they couldn't, because they kept screwing up the war is, is one thing that could come out of it. Now. When we look at Nord Stream, I mean, basically, it's a poker game between the U.S. state narrative and whatever Cy Hirsch is playing. He keeps leading them with his little piecemeal breadcrumb trail, and occasionally he's called bullshit directly. And one of the interesting points of Nord Stream now is that the Swedish prosecutor, Mads Lundqvist, has said that the likely scenario is, a, is that a state entity backed, fully backed whatever the attack was. Now, that basically to me means that essentially the U.S. sponsored story is that because the Ukrainians did it, according to the U.S., and they are our proxy, the U.S. did it. Now, I think we all we, you and I would probably both agree that's really what what's going on here. But at the same time, in Idiotsville, the U.S. would also literally be able to say off the back of the Swedish statement, well, no, the Ukrainian state sponsored the Ukrainian saboteurs, that's what that's what they're getting at. And, and that's where we have to cut it off and it ends there. Now, the Swedes have also said that the, literally the odds of finding the culprits are slim to nothing, which is ridiculous because what that means is that all of the world's intel and security services have no capability to find the world's largest single terrorist operatives <laughs> for reasons unknown, but yeah. we can find equivalent terrorists when it suits us, like the MH17 shoot down or anyone else, right? Yes. And so I think that basically this is kind of like the dog ending up having to bite its own tail um, mm -hmm. in this and, and locked into a narrative loop because it can't because basically the Americans kind of or we are having a hard time getting out of a, a hole that we've dug for ourselves. And this is just kind of increasing levels of self-referential madness, which cease to make sense anymore. I totally agree with that, Gator. I totally agree. Uh, thank you for the call. No worries. Take it easy. You too. Okay, John. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, just wanted to say a couple things about Mehdi Hassan and, and maybe uh, Ukraine as well. Uh, Mehdi Hassan is just a total disgrace. Uh, he's having this back and forth on Twitter, uh, with Sayed Mohammed Morendi, uh, who yeah. is a, uh, Iranian professor. Um, and he's just saying some of the worst things like uh, he's saying, oh, I I condemn U.S. sanctions in Iran, but I also condemn I Iran working with Vladimir and Bashar. So yeah, yeah. I'm I'm consistent, which is just a totally ridiculous thing to say. It's like, OK, Iran should give up relations with all of its allies and it should just I, I don't know what. Medi's even saying here, like he's just he's just saying, oh, don't don't have any relations with Russia or Syria and just act in a way that's, you know, an, entirely benevolent. Um, and he's just he's saying, uh, you know, I I'm totally consistent. I I'm, I don't have any kind of conflicts of interests, even though I work for, you know, Peacock and MSNBC. Um, and. Pretty much what, what 
really made me start disliking the man uh, is when he said Joe Biden is the most progressive uh, president of, of my lifetime. Um, he's, he's, he's so incredible. And I, I, I really don't know what Joe Biden has done. I mean, what, what is what has Joe Biden contributed? Uh, some economic stimulus in the first couple months of his administration and then everything else, you know, he's done is just, you know, congruent with Trump and everyone who came before him. And then he just he has this debating style where it's just this rapid fire uh, pinprick uh, sort of performative nonsense. And, you know, he he like he replies to Mark Hamill and he says, wow, thanks. The last Jedi, you know, uh, he's the, the man's just a total disgrace. And the fact that he yeah. is seen as some. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some, Listen, what he has is a shtick where he he pretends as if he's like sort of like the um, the like he, that he actually represents adversarial journalism. Right. But it's a scam because he'll only stay within the bounds set by the establishment. So right now, the establishment allows you to speak out for Palestinian human rights because becoming because, because being an because being like an unapologetic Israel supporter is no longer tenable. It's just Israel's too racist. It's too crazy. So now you're allowed to speak up for Palestinian rights. So Mehdi, you know, he 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 fits into that. You also can criticize uh, NATO expansion to Russia's borders. So when you talk about the Ukraine proxy war, you you are allowed to criticize NATO expansion. Why is that? Because there's a split inside the establishment about that. You know, people like uh, George Kennan and all these eminent figures have been critical of NATO expansion. So he will criticize that too. He won't criticize the U.S. role in the 2014 coup. He won't criticize the sabotage of the Minsk peace process inside Ukraine. Uh, he won't anymore highlight the fact that Ukraine has a neo-Nazi um, paramilitary force uh, because you're not allowed to do that anymore. You were allowed to do that to do that a few years ago, but ever since Russia invaded, you can't anymore. So he will follow those dictates. And you know, when it comes to places like Syria, he'll sort of he'll he'll try to uh, you know uh, he he basically tries to pretend as if all states have equal responsibility here. So mm-hmm. he'll say he'll say I'll condemn you know. Saudi Arabia uh, in Yemen, but you won't condemn uh, Iran in Syria. Well, those right. are not the same. Saudi Arabia invaded Yemen and bombed it. In the case of Syria, the part that everybody, like people like Mehdi, leave out is that Syria was faced with the most with the, with the most well funded insurgency in history. The U.S. and its allies spent billions of dollars uh, arming an insurgency dominated by Al Qaeda in Syria. And we're already, occupying we're occupying Syria illegally. Right now, yes, <laughs> why why yes, does he leave that out? Yeah, of course. But in that dirty war, Syria has the right to defend itself. It does. Right. If you're being flooded with weapons and insurgents from around, around the world, no matter what you think about the government, they have the right to defend themselves and their people who are being slaughtered by these sectarian fanatics that the U.S. and its allies were, were arming. And he leaves that part out. He basically equates a country uh, defending itself to some sort of invasion of a foreign country, you know, and in case of, you know, so, and that's the game he plays because you're not allowed inside the establishment to recognize the right of a global South country to defend itself. So, right. And he'll say, well, you know, these are rebel controlled areas. So therefore they're somehow separate from Syria. Yeah. No, yeah. When actually what that means right now is an Al Qaeda controlled area, because that's who controls the only rebel held province in Syria right now is Idlib, and that's al-Qaeda that controls it. So um, anyway, look, he's always been an opportunist. Uh, Back during Russiagate, I remember, like, he was auditioning for a job at MSNBC, and so he would basically use me to show off to, uh, like, you know, MSNBC personalities, how he could trash Russiagate critics. He would say things like, oh, I can't believe my friends (laughs) on the left are daring to deny Russian interference and to overlook all the – ties between Trump and Russia. And then after the Mueller report, he was saying that, you know, Trump should be impeached for all his contacts with Russians. So it's clear what he was doing. He was just auditioning for a job at MSNBC. So it's funny. When, when, so when Matt Taibbi calls him out and says, you know, like, 
this is Rich coming from a network that pushed Russiagate. Uh, Mehdi says to him, because Mehdi knows he can't defend that. So he says, oh, I wasn't there. It's true. He wasn't there. What he was doing while he wasn't there was was trying to be there by catering to Russiagate. That's the part that he left out. And uh, whatever, that's just, you know, the media will always reward opportunism. And, you know, again, if you are somebody, like, if you wanted to discredit the left, the actual left, and actual adversarial journalism, it's a great move to put up someone who is a... uh, ass kisser who toes the party line who will trash the left all the time promote himself and who also just looks so obnoxious in the process because it actually describes it makes people think this is what the left looks like and so it works great for him his own career and it also works great for anybody who wants to undermine actual adversarial journalism and the actual left well he has nothing of value to say either there's no real worldview or political project behind anything he does um one last thing maybe about Ukraine um, and some of, some of the leaks that have come out. I do think there's there's likely some uh, internal war within the government surrounding Ukraine because we don't really have a coherent Ukraine policy, right? The, the, the goal, as far as I can tell, is just to kill as many Russians as possible, right? There's no, there's no really uh, viable goal. You know, because we're not going to be able to retake Crimea. It's just physically impossible and politically it doesn't work. And so there's probably some kind of uh, discussion on what the actual goals are and what we're really trying to accomplish. Because the economic benefits of the Ukraine war from the United States side were basically, you know, decided within the first few months just to cut Russia off from Europe. You know, that, that was the whole point. But when that was accomplished, there's really nothing other to do other than sell weapons uh, and kill Russians. But that that doesn't really have a long-term benefit. You know, there's nearly 150 million, uh, if you include the annexed territories, uh, maybe even more than that, uh, Russians uh, in Russia. So, I mean, if you kill, let's say you kill a million Russians, okay? I mean, what, what what's actually been accomplished here? So there's there's probably some discussion, uh, and the leaks. Maybe uh, it's it's possible that the United States is just trying to slightly back away in the most uh, in a way that saves face. But from what it, when I from what I can tell, there's there's not anything earth shattering in these leaks. Um, and a lot of people who support Russia are kind of scratching their head on, on really what to make of it, whether they were doctored or mm-hmm. what the actual goal here is. It's a really interesting question. And um, I think it's I, I think you raise a number of really good questions to ask. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's very confusing. I, I, I don't know what to make of you. I just know when I read these things, I don't see anything that's embarrassing to the U.S. And that makes me question. What what you know? What the I mean, it's it's embarrassing to the U.S. in the sense that there was a leak because we know Biden hates leakers. You know, he prosecutes. He wanted to prosecute, you know, whistleblowers and leakers, and that's something that he's well, always but believed. But, it, but it's not actually embarrassing if if this was intended for some for some unexplained reason. That that's I right. I mean, for for the U.S. public, people yeah. who aren't politically engaged, who don't really understand the the contours of the conflict or the, uh-huh. the dynamics of this they see oh the government leaked something well that that's a concern right. so from that you. perspective it's like well maybe maybe there's something going on in that respect but in terms of the actual content you know i i don't i don't gotcha. think there's that much to say john thanks for the call keith Hi, Keith. Uh, you are unmuted, but I can't hear you. And I, I see some people in the chat are um, noting that the, the call is a little buggy for them today. So, Oh, there, oh, there we go. There you go, Keith. I hear you. Go ahead. Great. Uh, first of all, on Mehdi Hassan, my mom always told me when I was growing up, don't ever get in a pissing fight with a skunk. That was one thing. And on the leaks, um, my kind of take on the whole thing is it really runs up next to the Restrict Act. And 
I'm thinking that they're going to use these leaks because I've already seen things about Biden trying to get it pulled from social media is just maybe um, a justification for the restrict act. That's, that's just, that's all I wanted to share. I want to know what your thoughts are on that. You think some of these leaked documents are a justification for the restrict act. Yeah. I think they could use them in a way to say like, you know, look at this, uh, you know, somebody exposed these leaks on the, on the right. internet and social media because the restrict act is definitely applies to this. Like, couldn't it be used to say like, Hey, social media, you need to take down all this information when they're giving you power. Okay. Well, that. listen, Hey, listen, uh, um, I look in this situation, it's, uh, so many things are possible and, uh, you know, I'm not going to go where you're going with this here, but I think, um, because I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know enough about their strict action and what the implications for these documents would be under that. But yeah, um, I was just trying to think of like who, who benefits. Yeah. And well, it, it does benefit a couple of different angles and that's one angle that it could possibly benefit. So yeah. I just, I'm just curious about that. Well, thank enough. you for all the work you do, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. And, right, uh, and thanks for calling. Okay. Henry. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Hi, Aaron. Um, and happy Easter. Um, happy Easter. You know, Keith brought up a really good point, something I hadn't considered. But um, I, my first thought when I saw about these leaks is that's just controlled um, narrative for, you know, uh, to kind of steer focus and attention in a certain way during a war. That's yeah. that's my first thought. And, you know, but any any military intelligence that knows what it's doing is going to take all this in along with everything else and make decisions accordingly. And if they got one, if they got a good one, then they won't pay any attention to it or they will, you know. Um, but somebody uh, brought up Nord Stream a little while ago, another caller. Yeah. And I, yeah. I had something that I've been just itching to say about this that I don't see anywhere in the Western media or anybody really picking it up on Twitter. Um, some guy, uh, he's uh, an American. He lives in Russian, Russia, but he published something shortly after, like in, in, around October 4th or fifth, something like that. I have the link and I'll put it in the chat, but um, he published how on YouTube, how he had been given um, some whistleblower documents from somebody in the military during those um, BIPOP 22 or whatever they call them, those military games they were doing in the Baltic Sea or that area. Yeah. Um, describing almost exactly what Cy Hirsch later mentioned about how they carried out the act, how they, you know, the divers and everything. Uh, and I thought that kind of really kind of matches up with Cy Hirsch's story. And they had, as far as I know, they don't have anything to do with one another. Um, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Actually, I, I forwarded it to Max um, a while ago, but I don't know if he ever got that information. Um, but for cra one crazy reason, um, Ryan Grimm follows me on Twitter. So I ran it by him and he just said it was fascinating. He wanted to know if I knew how to get in touch with that guy, but I, of course I don't. And what's the guy's name? Um, John Mark Dugan. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, he's. It, I, I've I haven't known about him for very long, just since the last update to Cy Hirsch's article, and then yeah. I just kind of stumbled across the, this. The only thing is, I'm just, you know, I do think that uh, these intelligence operations cover their tracks pretty well. So I'm just worried. I'm worried about what open sources can actually prove uh, with this kind of stuff, but. Uh, you know, um, it's worth a look. Uh, it, it, yeah, well, it, I just think about the timing of it and, and yeah, how sure. it was published in October shortly after it happened. Sure, 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 sure. Well, and, and how if, that, if you have you the know. link, if you have the link, send it to me. Yeah. Well, I just put it in the chat. That worked. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, well, thanks, Henry. Thanks for the call. Uh, Albert. Unmute. Yeah. Hello. Could you hear me? Yes. Nice. You're okay. So I'm a bit sleep deprived. So I'll just make this really quick. Since uh, we're talking about Mehdi Hassan, right? Um, I seen a couple weeks ago he was actually interviewed by... Uh, he was interviewing Noam Chomsky. So I thought that was kind of weird because usually Noam Chomsky's blacklisted on mainstream media, you know? So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Say it one more time. So uh, Mehdi Hassan had actually interviewed Noam Chomsky a couple weeks yeah. ago. uh-huh. And it was just kind of weird because, I mean, Noam Chomsky is usually not interviewed by mainstream media, you know. So uh, what were your thoughts on that? Do you know? Like, would you, what... Well, I, I didn't see the interview, so uh, 
Oh, so I think they were talking about the Iraq War. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like the 20th anniversary of it. Yeah. And a few other so, things like that. So, look, listen, so, so Chomsky is, um, after being shut out of mainstream media for most of his life, now he's allowed on sometimes when he uh, is useful <laughs> to the narrative. So, for example, back when he was advocating for Democrats to vote for Joe Biden uh, over Trump, you know, that's when he was given attention. Uh, and in the case of the Iraq War, yeah, now now you're allowed to criticize the Iraq War. Back during the Iraq War, I, if I remember right, he was on CNN once, and he debated some, you know, State Department or like some 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 former official or or, or some neocon once. Um, but that was it. And so yeah, twenty twenty years later, it makes sense to me. He's allowed now on to he's allowed now to go criticize it because it's twenty years later and whatever. We all know that. The, that the damage has been done. Well, he's been on Democracy Now too a few times, you know. Um, of course he is. But, but that is a little bit different, I guess. Nowadays they're they're more aligned with MSNBC than. Uh, well, Noam has been Noam has been on Democracy Now forever. You know, he's been on yeah. Democracy Now since it started. Um, mm-hmm. That's one show that hasn't censored him ever. You know, okay. so that, that's consistent. But alrighty, I'll leave it there. I'll uh, call back some other time or something. I'm a bit All tired right, today. Take it easy. Thank you. You too. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Alrighty. Hi, Aaron. It's always good to uh, to talk to you when I can. I'm, I I always listen to the AM lives in uh, after after they're aired. But today I had some time. It's also Easter Sunday, so Happy Easter. Um, happy you Easter. Know, yeah. Given the um, Mehdi Hassan attack, really on Matt Taibbi, you know, he he didn't give him any chance to respond. But you know. We're seeing a big pushback on an international scale to the efforts that people like you are doing and what Max is doing, whether it's the OPCW and your testimony at the U.N. Security Council or Seymour Hersh. You know, as we heard this French uh, MEP saying, you know, that Seymour Hersh is old and, you know, senile and doesn't know what he's talking about now. You know, now we're seeing and also with what Michael Schellenberger said, you know, that some whistleblowers told him that, you know, there's like a big establishment pushback now. You know, this was inevitable. And I kind of just want to know what are your thoughts going forward? What are the ways we're going to have to kind of defend ourselves and also fight back? You know, because, you know, this is a coordinated effort to try and shift the narrative back in their favor because obviously we've gotten some breakthroughs and we are winning so what are some advices and tips that you could share with other organizers like myself who are trying to get through these muddy waters (sighs) look you know um i think we're in a we're in a moment where just everybody trying to work in media is so incentivized to sell out and to compromise. And the good thing is, is that, you know, there are these new, like, independent, you know, uh, spaces opening up. And, uh, you know, someone like Matt Taibbi, who's done very well on his own, is an example that it's possible to, you know, break through of all these propaganda constraints. But still, it's very challenging. And, you know, um, politically, things are just very divided. Like, there's, like... Uh, there's no attempt to find any kind of common ground or really to listen. And so it's just challenging. And everything is very uh, sectarian. Even on the left, things are very divided. Like there are people on the left who hate other leftists more than they even hate people on the right, you know? Um, And uh, how to navigate all that? I don't know. I I just think, uh, look, um, listen, I can tell you, um, Jose, like, like what you're doing confronting all these politicians about their hypocrisy, I think it's really effective and very powerful. And it shows people uh, the bankruptcy of, of the positions of all these so-called progressives who then go, go, go ahead and turn and support proxy wars and censorship. And so I think, look, honestly, I think a really key thing is more of that is challenging elected progressives directly, calling them out for being, hypocrites and calling them, asking them to explain their policies, including, you know, voting for all these disastrous uh, measures funding a proxy war in Ukraine rather than taking care of uh, 
needs at home. Um, and uh, beyond that, I just think politics are, are, are going to go the way that they're going to go. And there are certain things beyond anyone's individual control, but everyone can just do their part to try to bring the truth to the public. You know, I just like on this question about, you know, how we navigate such a corrupt system. It's, it's very difficult. I just think we just keep speaking truth and, you know, finding the people who want to listen to us. Understood. No, thank you for that, Aaron. And, you know, kind of with me here. And usually before we do an intervention, we do read up on what we want to get the person on. Like with the Pelosi thing, we went on the gray zone and we read, you know, how she uh, admitted she knew there were no WMDs. Yeah. And, and, and she did vote against the Iraq war. That's something Ray McGovern told me. But yeah, she, she did. She did. You know, but she knowingly knew there were no WMDs and still didn't say that. So Yeah, and didn't try to impeach. And then when she faced the call to uh, impeach Bush, she refused to do it, saying the country has to move forward. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. No. Anyway, though, Aaron, thanks for all the good work you do. I got to get going. I'll see you. Thank you. you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Neoliberal tears, and then we'll wrap it up. Howdy, Aaron. Um can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, happy Sunday. Um, you know, I actually, Jose, first of all, is amazing. And, I, and, and thank God that we have someone confronting these Congress members, even when it's uncomfortable and all of the boomers in the audience yell at you and tell you, no, we should have war. Like, I mean, I have a laundry list of anxieties and that's why I don't confront Congress members, but I'm really grateful to people like him, to anyone, to Max Blumenthal, um, catching Ro Khanna on the street. Also, your interview with Ro this week was amazing. Um, oh, and- yeah, you know, I haven't I haven't watched it yet. Um, we had Ro Khanna on Useful Idiots, Katie Halper and I, and uh, you we both- talked to him about... I'm not a debate me, bro, but, like, I don't, I don't watch that content, but, like, yeah. you both bodied him. I mean, the question about sanctions when Katie was like, is it like a moral virtue signaling for you, considering they don't work and haven't achieved anything? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'll have to watch that myself. I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) Yeah. But you were there. I mean, mean, you were amazing. I mean, no, that was really... And there's something great about seeing... I, I... seeing Congress members confronted with real questions like, oh, like, I mean, for for everyone in the chat probably watched it. But like when you brought up Syria and you were like, I mean, you know that the rebels we were like Jake Sullivan, um, you know, was admitting that we were funding uh, right. ISIS aligned groups, which I'm even scared to say. But like, you know, it was like, of course he knew that. And the fact that he yeah. was trying to still present it as like, no, but Bashar bad and like human yeah, rights, yeah. human rights, human rights. Yeah. So. Um, one thing I wanted to throw out there about the um, the Mehdi thing, I think it's going to look bad for him in the long run because, um, and I'm going to put this in the chat, he also like, um, I, I mean, at first someone t- said something to him like, you know, oh, you should go back to the UK. And he called him out as like racist garbage. How dare you suggest that? And then someone in his replies said, um, said uh, like, you know, oh, I, I bought your book after you took down Moscow Taibi. Um, so he was like, and he was like thanking him, Mehdi, like, you know, uh-huh. and sort of, I guess, tacitly encouraging Moscow Taibi being like, uh, you know, an idiom. So I think there's like, I think the reason why it was, and I'm glad, I'm really grateful for your analysis. I think there, there's going to be an escalating war between like establishing media and independent media. Like he was definitely doing it to sort of virtue signal to the peanut gallery, like, We've all hated this influence of independent media and this, I'm going to do this as like in like a WWE style thing, clip it out ahead of time, not have the interview even fully available before I frame it for people. It's all pretty obvious. And, um, yeah. And just, but, but just the idea that he would call play into the, the, like the Moscow Taibi part, like, you know, I was, I was saying, like, you know, it, it's like considering Matt found it useful idiots as, uh, uh, you know, and, and you're the co-hosts. I was saying that, like, you know, it, it's re- it really circles back to all of that. And Katya Halperina, uh, and, and we can call you Aronov, Aronov Mate. And, of course, the third co-host, Bashar al-Assad, um, <laughs> yeah. who, is, who, always, who is always the life of the party um, and useful idiots. Um, so anyway. Thank you for that. 
Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed the interview. And it's a rare opportunity to speak to a uh, progressive Democrat. I should have mentioned that before. So the squad will not speak to, you know, people to their left. But Ro Khanna does, to his credit. And, you know, even though I really strongly disagree with him, as that interview with him shows, uh, I at least appreciate he's willing to speak to us. And, and he knows he's going to face these questions. So I do think that that speaks well of him, that he's willing to put himself in that situation, which no other elected progressive will do. So that's how it is. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you spending time with me. And uh, have a great rest of your Sunday. And I'll see you next time.